From Lansing Community College, this is LCC Connect, and this is Land Stories, with me, David Seawick. Each episode explores a different topic, such as the people, business, neighborhoods, communities, buildings, and other phenomena that make up the history of our college and our region. We tell stories, and in doing so, we connect the past to the present. On this episode of Land Stories, I am joined in the studio with Bill Castanier, the president of the Historical Society of Greater Lansing, and Bill has been on our program before. For those of you that are loyal listeners, you would have noted that we had Bill in here in the studio a uh, little while ago to discuss a historic project devoted to the history of Interstate 496. And the reason why I invited Bill on the program today is to discuss another program that the Historical Society of Greater Lansing is working on, and that is an exhibit of panoramic photos. And it's an exhibit that will be on display, and perhaps is on display, actually, by the time that uh, this show goes to air, at the Library of Michigan in the Lake Erie Room. So, Bill, I want to give you a very warm welcome again to the program, and thank you for coming on, and tell us a bit about this photo exhibit. Sure. Thank you, David, for having us today. The photo exhibit, the idea for it started several years ago when a friend of mine, Dan Barber, and I would get together for breakfast, and he collected panoramic images. And he said, wouldn't it be fun to do an exhibit of panoramas? I said, sure. Why not? <laughs> it's all, all for it. And then during COVID, Dan died, not from COVID, but some, from some other ailment. And we still had the photographs, and we decided, you know, let's do a exhibit in his memory, but also bring it in statewide. So we worked at the Library of Michigan, and we are going to have 55 panoramic views on exhibit at the Library of Michigan of all sizes. But a panoramic is basically a long, narrow photograph that was taken primarily in the early part of the last century. And uh, they're spectacular in their own way. Lansing City Pulse had an article on it, and the um, writer, Larry Cosentino, came up with the cleverest line. He said, panoramas are different because they're part of the unselfie generation. Uh-huh. And it was very clever that he noted the difference. I mean, now we take sure. pictures of individuals standing in front of things. Back then, you took photographs of thousands of people standing in front of things. Sure. And it's, so it's a whole different kind of way of looking, at, but it's part of the culture, really. It explains who we are as people and how we change. Absolutely. And I want to uh, expand upon that point a little bit. I have um, had a chance to look at some of these panoramic photos myself. I actually looked at a fair amount here just a little while ago. And that is absolutely one of the things that first stands out when you look at these groups of photos is that many of them are panoramic shots of a lot of people. And some of them were taken of social clubs or of uh, places that were very well known to be places that people would gather. And and then some of them were also from Michigan State University. So there's always a challenge whenever we're talking about photography on an audio uh, recording. But nonetheless... Yeah, very difficult. <laughs> we, we shall do our best. And uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the subjects that were in sure. these. And how does that relate to not only that theme that you just brought up about these being group experiences as opposed to a very personal experience when one takes the phone out and you know, shoots a picture of himself, but then also the social groups and and who were in them. Sure. Probably one of the largest uh, 
what I'd call the normal uses of panoramic photographer was to take photographs of soldiers at a boot camp or going off to war or returning from war. And we have several of those, and the majority of them are from Camp Custer. But they also tell you about a time when we were getting ready to go into World War One, and soldiers were going to Fort Custer or Camp Custer at the time and being trained in tens of thousands. And there's mass photographs of them. There's also some really interesting photographs of some Western Michigan businesses that got together for camp picnics and they posed for photographs. Michigan State University, there's a lot of band photographs, but there's also some pretty dramatic shots, panorama views of the campus itself. And they're almost 360 degrees, which are pretty startling to see. And you have to imagine this in your head. You take a group of people lined up in a semi curve because the way the panorama camera moves across it, you want it to make it look like a straight line. But sure. in order to do that, the people had to be standing in a curve or you got really strange abstractions. Uh, there's photographs of sporting events. Um, University of Michigan's second game in their new stadium, but it was the dedication with Ohio State. There's a heavyweight boxing match. There's all kinds of those. Uh, those were popular too because they drew a lot of people. And the object behind this was the photographic companies that took these made a living selling individual prints to the people in them. Even though you were just a tiny smudge, as sure. Larry called them in the article today, sure. people bought them and sent them home, especially if you're soldiers. One of the questions we all had was, how much did they cost? It's just like, I nobody knew. I mean, I contacted sure. every major archives of photographic history in the United States that I could find. They were all polite. They all got back to me, which was really unusual. Mm -hmm. And they said, we don't know. We have nothing in our records. Well, we happened to ask a local postcard collector. She's a really good researcher. And she goes, you know, I think I've got something about that. And we go, okay. She found a postcard from LeClear's Photographic Company in Lansing that they had sent out to their customers advertising a panoramic view of MSU faculty for $1.50. Okay. We actually probably, we're, we've sent it around to those museums who are going to add it at least to their information. They mm -hmm. want and that's the kind of thing that, there was a lot of serendipitous things that happened because of this. Oh, sure. And the opportunity for people to be able to see images of not only very important events in world history, and when you're looking at an image, for example, of people at a place like Camp Custer, during the First World War, you're, you are looking at a historic artifact that refers back to a very substantial event. And what you mentioned, Bill, a moment ago about the business side of this panoramic photography business is an interesting one. The business model, I think, we can look at it now and think, well, that was actually quite clever. If you have a panoramic photo that has 100 people in it, and you have the opportunity to make 100 copies and sell each individual a copy of that, well, then you have a business plan. And it sounds to me like that's a little bit of what was going on with some oh, of these. Oh, absolutely. And one of the major companies for Camp Custer was out of Chicago, Kaufman and Fabry. They became famous because they shot the earthquake in San Francisco. Sure. And then they also shot the World's Fair or exhibition in uh, Chicago. So they were pretty famous. And one of the techniques they used that many photographers used, I still haven't totally figured it out myself, but it was taking photographs from kites. They would use up to 15 kites okay. to lift a 50-pound camera in the air and then trigger it. 
which to me is how did they keep it totally still because he could have no movement. Sure, with the photography of the day, yes. And that technological component to it is one that I actually think when we look at an old photograph, panoramic or a non-panoramic photo, but the panoramic ones, I think this uh, illustrates it even greater. When you look at an old photograph, there's a lot that went into that artifact being produced that doesn't go into the way that photos are produced nowadays. I can take a device out of my pocket, a little mini computer, take a photo, put it back in my pocket, and then if I want to print it out, I can print it out. If I want to send it electronically, I can send it electronically, and so on and so forth. It's a totally different interaction than an event. And those photos, when they were taken, a panoramic photo like that absolutely would have been an event, and it would have been an event that was part of Another event, for example, one of the photos in that collection that I noticed is one that was taken out at Lake Lansing called Pine Lake back then. I think it still would have been called Pine Lake. Yes, it would have. And this is a just a absolutely incredible snapshot of a moment in time that we don't usually get to see of the past. This is people that uh, were in some you know celebration out there and some folks listening will know, others will know in a second because I will tell you if you didn't that... There was an amusement park out there at one time. And by out there, of course, I'm, I'm referencing, geographically speaking, uh, related to the Lansing area. We are, we're doing this program here in downtown Lansing. And so Lake Lansing, the Pine Lake area, at one time was a you know, well-known resort area. That, the reason why I bring that up is that when you can look at an old photo and, and understand that there was a real process involved in that that when these photographers would come around, it, it created an event out of it. I think it adds an extra bit of respect. Uh, and maybe respect isn't the right word, but it's the one that pops in my mind. Just a real appreciation for the fact that we have these items from the past. Well, one of the things that makes it interesting, we've got a manual which you can download from online of, for one of the cameras that they used at the time, the Circuit 6 it probably was. Kodak held the license to that. It was a Canadian inventor, but Kodak had the license in the United States. If you were to use a circuit six, they delineated about 20 individual steps that you had to take to set the camera up before you could even think about taking a snapshot. And it included everything from the speed you wanted it to rotate, the opening of the lens, make sure you, you use a key to wind the gears. Mm. There, it just went, it was like a checklist on an airplane. Sure. And then... There was another element that you always, not always think about is you had hundreds of people sometimes. Every one of those people had to stand absolutely still. They could not chew gum. They couldn't blink. They could Any kind of movement shows up in a blur. Sure. Uh, one that comes to mind is from Olivet, and there's this blur really in front of the photograph. Some Somebody had brought their dog, it looks like. Okay. So, and the dog wasn't standing still sure. for taking a photograph. So, and then you had, to, because people were so distant from each other, from one end to the other, uh, not only could they run from one end to the other and get in both sides of the photograph, but also that distance created problems with shadows. Uh -huh. Light might have fallen differently on various parts of, of it. Of course. The photographers had to be geniuses to take these things. Plus, they're lugging like 75, a minimum 75 pounds of equipment. And it had, couldn't, be a, couldn't be an overcast day. It couldn't be a sunny day. Had to just I, I don't know how they did it. And yeah. then when you're all done, they've got these, uh, toward the latter part of this, they had canisters of film that could be up to 20 feet long. Where did you and how did you first develop the film 
And then how did you print that film? Um, there's records of people developing them in bathtubs. Oh, sure. Uh, but there was a lot of, there was tremendous complexity. And today it's like shooting, you're, you're done. <laughs> there's yeah. nothing to it. Yeah, you know, think about it. That I could take a device out of my pocket and take a picture that has, well, actually pretty good quality to it. Uh, especially when one thinks back to the early days of digital photography when you could spend $50,000 on a camera that took a picture that was of a lot less quality than what you would get now with your iPhone in your pocket. And that whole uh, equipment aspect of this is something that we definitely should keep in mind because the, the whole production of these prints, and you discussed, for example, the development part of it, what Bill's referring to, and this is a sign of the times, I suppose, that I feel it necessary to explain this a little bit, but before the days of digital photography... A photograph was printed on paper. It was a special type of paper, and it was printed based on what was called the negative. To make a long story short, film photography at its basis exposes a special type of acetate material to light, and in doing that, an image is created. It's, it's a negative image, an old-fashioned, what we now call analog photography, and then the development process uses special chemicals to transfer that image to a larger piece of paper, and it reproduces it, if it's taken in color, if it's taken in black and white, uh, with the light profile, the color profile, that is present at the time. So that's a totally different procedure than simply, I'm going to take a picture of that pretty blue car parked in front of my house because I think it's cool. I'm going to take the phone out of my pocket, snap the photo, and be on my merry way. Yeah, it wasn't, even though... Photography was democratized really in the early 20th century by Kodak. To print these massive things, to load the film in the camera, and then to figure out a way to print it, they used contact prints for the earliest ones, so they're about three foot, and we've got an example of one. But the later ones that were 20 feet had to be with great difficulty that you printed these. Now, they probably didn't sell those in multiples. Right. The ones that sold in multiples were anywhere from two to three feet, probably wide. And uh, they marketed, you know, they got the people's addresses and mailed it to their family and asked if they'd like to buy a print for a dollar and 50 cents. I think with the soldiers, I can give you a real classic example. For the longest time, my grandfather had a panorama view of his boot camp, which was at Great Lakes, Illinois. He was in the Navy. He was a submariner, World War One. And it was ripped in half. And I didn't think of it until he was much older to ask him, where's the rest of it? He said, well, his buddy couldn't afford to have one. He ripped it in half of it and gave it to his friend. So somewhere yeah. out there, we have the half that I own mm -hmm. on exhibit, but somewhere out there, there's another half to that photograph. It's kind of interesting floating around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's really something. And a buck and a half was quite a bit of money. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Nin Back then. 1919. That was, yep. a, that was a goodly bunch of money. And, sure. Uh, you know, th that probably tradition started, what, the Civil War where people took photographs and sent it to their loved ones? So very much. Remember them? Very much. And actually during the Civil War is when photography in the United States really became even widespread. Up to that point, it hadn't been. Alexander Gardner and uh, Matthew Brady are two men that probably were more responsible than anybody else for popularizing photography in the United States because they took photos of the aftermath of Civil War battles. And then Matthew Brady would publish the photos, put them in his New York City art studio, maybe two, three, four, five days after the event happened. 
back then, that was absolutely the most astounding thing for people to be able to walk down the street into his photo studio and see actual photographs of a war that was taking place hundreds of miles away. And one of the most valuable things that any Civil War soldier carried on him, if he was lucky enough to have it, was a photograph. It's usually a very small one of his mother or his wife or some other significant relations that meant more to him than anything. The, the historian Drew Gilpin Faust, in a book she wrote about the Civil War called This Republic of Suffering, even in that book she argues that those photos were so important for the men that had them because it was the only connection they had. Oh, they're with, with thousands of miles ones. away from home. Yep. And letters went back and forth, but they took weeks. Sure. And, and these panoramic photos, I imagine they were a similarly important artifact uh, for the organizations, for the individuals that were in them. By the time we get to after World War II, so many years after these photographs were taken, then I think there's sort of a second a second stage. I like the term you used, dem uh, democratization of photography. And after World War II, cameras get smaller, they get cheaper, and of course you have the Polaroid that comes out, which is kind of the very first version of what our phones accomplish for us. Where did you get these photos from, the, okay. the originals? Where did they come from? Okay, well, Dan Barber, sure. a collector, collected a number of them. Now, he scoured antique shops. Uh, however, then we went to archives to supplement it. So we went to Grand Rapids a Public Library Archive, a University of Michigan, the Clements Collection, mm -hmm. which has a massive collection. We went to MSU Museum, MSU Archives. So we went to a lot of different uh, places to find uh, photographs to fit in that we knew we wanted to represent different things. Uh, and that worked out well. We could have probably easily exhibited 100. Sure. It wouldn't have been difficult at all. Uh, the only difficult would be hanging them and finding a room large enough for them because these are, these are big photographs. Sure. They're out there, but generally speaking, most people do not display them anymore. You know, they've lost connection with that family member or whatever it is. Sure. Um, and they're also hard to frame. They're long. Oh, yeah. Uh, they roll up in tight little rolls, and they often crack, and mm -hmm. we have examples of that. Yep. We also have an example of some, one that was cut into pieces, even though it was a continuous photograph at one time, so the woman could lay it out flat. Uh, but they had they had some built-in problems with framing them, saving mm -hmm. them. You'll find them in people's attics at estate sales all sure. the time. Sure. And no one knows why they have them. Yep. When was the last time you walked into a building and saw a panoramic photo? LCC has one. <laughs> yeah, besides <laughs> LCC. BC, um, that's a good question. Yeah. yeah. They just aren't out there. They just don't aren't there anymore. Now you think about what it costs just to process them and have them printed yep. now. It's not an easy project. So one of the first things you always do when you do a project like this is let's look to someone else that's done this. Yep. We found one panoramic exhibit in the United States. That's all we could find. Now, really? Maybe they were before the Internet, mm -hmm. but we just could not find any where somebody had done us a, a really substantial look at panoramic photographer. Sure. And I can speak for myself now having seen all the photos in this collection, or at least most of them anyways, it's... Impressive that every area of the state is in one way or another represented. There's panoramic photos from small mining towns in the western part of the Upper Peninsula 100 years ago. There's photos of cities downstate and sort of everything in between. Absolutely. And that was important for us because we're doing it at the Library of Michigan. Right. Now, the weight of them generally is Lansing and Michigan State University. Sure. 
and we obviously don't represent all 14 of our public universities. Right. We could have, but we wanted to give a representation of what makes Michigan. Sure. And so there's a lot of uh, a lot of panoramic photographers shot a lot of natural scenes in the Upper Peninsula, and we have several of those. A lot of harbor scenes. Oh, yeah. Very common. Yep. And the other thing that photographers who are interested in making a living they hand colored a lot of a lot of the harbor scenes and they must have sold them as tourist souvenirs yeah probably. that's the other thing david that happened is once um, panoramic photography became popular postcard manufacturers developed three card wide ones five card oh, wide yeah. ones of panoramas yep. and sold them those are really unique they're some of my favorites yep boy you you just made me recall a, a memory of the last panoramic postcard I received in the mail. And I did actually receive one in wow. the mail once. It was like 20 years ago. It was from um, a friend overseas, actually. And he had mailed me a, a letter that he wrote on the back of a panoramic postcard, which I thought was pretty cool. But yeah, you're right. Those aren't, you don't see them around anymore. And and even even postcards in general, no, I, no. I, I fear that I may be correct in what I'm at about to say, which is the day shall not be long, where those get even more rare to find. Well, first, they're expensive to send. Yeah. There's probably 40 cents now somewhere in that sure. range. I collect some photographs uh, on postcards, and I send them to my friends. <laughs> I just send them an old postcard, and they go, where'd you get that? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things, and you were really instrumental in helping with this, is panoramic Photographs also represent a certain time and place mm -hmm. when photographs were taken of things that would not necessarily be appropriate today. Two of them that we really highlight are Buffalo Bill's Traveling Show, which was shot in Lansing in 1914, and then a photograph of an Indian encampment, which was basically part of a circus. Sure. And that was in Grand Rapids. And that was a representation of how we glamorized the Old West. And you helped frame that for us because it's a, we could have just shown those photographs. Yeah. No mention at all, but we felt it was necessary to point out that this is something that would have been inappropriate today. Right. And, but it also shows how we were, through photography, kind of uh, molding people to a certain context on what history was all about. I mean, Buffalo Bill's Old West never existed. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so, of course. It was... Sure. Well, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up, Bill. The photos that he's referring to, uh, in, indeed, one of them is Buffalo Bill. It's actually a remarkable photograph. Yeah. you got to go down to the uh, State Library and see that thing if you can. He's standing in the middle of it. It's an older photograph, older in the sense that it's towards the end of his uh, show's run. He looks, you know, he's getting up there in years. Buffalo Bill is, I was so fascinated by that photo for a lot of reasons, one of which is the opportunity that it offered to do exactly what Bill you just mentioned, and that is providing a historical context. And I can't think of a better photo that provides that type of a cue of a much broader, deeper discussion lesson on depiction of indigenous peoples. Buffalo Bill wasn't... Well... His popularity was not limited to the United States. Oh, By any stretch of the imagination, the entire world, what the entire world thinks of as the American West is very much um, the creation of Buffalo Bill's mind, and not bad for a person who grew up in Canada. <laughs> right. You know, he's from, uh, actually grew up in Mississauga, Ontario. He was born, he was born out somewhere out in the plains, I want to say Iowa or Nebraska, mm -hmm. somewhere around there. But uh, I remember he grew up in uh, Mississauga, which is now a, 
a very heavily populated suburb of Toronto. And then he moved back to the United States when I think he was 14 or 15. And he had quite the career. But uh, the imagery of not only those depictions there, but other stuff there as well, I, I actually think this is a good, probably a good point to leave off on. The historical context that an exhibit offers uh, when we are looking at photographs is really the value of having them displayed in such a way because I can look at a photo of Buffalo Bill, but when I see this five or six foot long panorama that has literally a cast of 80 people in it all lined up and every one of those people in that photo, we could look at them nowadays, we would probably more accurately call them actors. It's kind of what they were. But each character, if you want to look at it that way, represented somebody that was in society at the time. And according, that is, to what the image of society that he wanted to create would be. And, and I guess in the end, that's what all photos do, is they leave a permanent image with us of a past. And the, the context, trying to derive the context out of those photos sometimes, uh, is a real useful exercise in and of itself. Oh, absolutely. You know, and the other thing that we started noticing, and it's obvious once you start noticing it, is uh, fashions and styles. Oh, yeah. They're fascinating to look at what men and women were wearing back then. We just got a photograph that somebody brought in because they knew we were doing this. Mm -hmm. And then there was the rest of the story. He, This local Lansing gentleman, Bob Wilkes, found this photograph at an antique store, and he just fascinated him, and he went, that's from my hometown. Olivet, and then he looks and he knows people in it. There you go. And strangely enough, his mother's in it. Oh, wow. And he, he stumbled on an antique store in Lansing. Isn't that something? And the, in that photograph, there's maybe a dozen women wearing furs with little fox heads on them. Uh -huh. So it tells you about what people were wearing. Sure. You know, that type sure. of thing that you just don't think about. Uh, absolutely. Well, the exhibit then opens on Saturday? It opens Saturday, and then it runs through May. And we have a series of speakers, and you can find out the speakers that will be coming and when on our website, lansinghistory.org. Um, and it's open during regular Library of Michigan hours, which be sure to check because, for example, coming up is President's Day and they're closed sure. that weekend. Yeah. But I think people enjoy it. We want people to take a time and really get into a photograph, not just glance at it, but sure. look at who's in it. Sure. It's kind of amazing. Absolutely. Well, thank you very, thank very you. much. Thank you being on the program. I appreciate it. And thank you for all the work you do in the community for historic preservation well, and it's, remembrance. It's, it's fun important. and I think it's important. Good deal. You've been listening to Land Stories with me, David Seawick. For more information on this program and to stream past episodes, visit lccconnect.org. LCC Connect is the official home of the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College, offering hours of original and exciting programming. Hosted by faculty, staff, and community members, LCC Connect explores our college's work in the community, important topics in higher education, and our vision for the future. Catch the vibe on 89.7 FM or online at lccconnect.org. Until next time, remember, keep telling good stories. <laughs>